Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. First, a quick apology. I've been struggling with a bout of coronavirus for the last few days, so that's why this episode is a few days late. My throat is a little better today, but if my voice sounds a bit funny, my apologies, you'll just have to bear with me. This episode, we are talking about Gundervold, the Usurper King. The story of Gundervold is a fascinating one, as it touches on a lot of the core historical and political trends we've been discussing. It reveals a lot about Merovingian power and politics in this period, and, on top of all of this, is a dramatic tale with some familiar characters. So, with no further ado, let's dive right into it in episode 37, From Across the Seas. Since the origins of Gundervold are the exact thing that is so controversial, we're going to largely stick to the version Gregory gives and revisit it later to discuss the nuance and controversy. Gundervold was born and raised in Gaul, well-educated and, thus presumably, fairly wealthy. He was taught to read and write, already fairly rare in this period, and, more importantly, he wore his hair long and down over his shoulders and onto his back. As we've discussed before, the Merovingians were often called the long-haired kings, and the long, flowing locks of Clovis that you see in this podcast's cover image was the ideal for Merovingian kings. All wore their hair long and over the shoulders and down the back. It was the marker of royal blood. So, for Gundervold to do the same from a young age was already a highly provocative act. At this young age, Gundervold's mother took him to the court of Childebert I and presented him to the old king of Paris. The old schemer listened to the mother as she pleaded with him, quote, This is your nephew, the son of King Clothar. He is hated by his father, so you take him, for he is your blood. End quote. Childebert was childless and knew his brother Clothar's ambition. Clothar was already well on his way to establishing his dominance over Gaul, and Childebert was always looking for ways to undermine him. Gundervold was simply an opportunity for this, a pawn in the game between the two sons of Clovis. Childebert accepted the boy into his court and kept him at his side. Now, there is no mention in Gregory of whether Childebert meant to make the boy his heir, though it is heavily implied by his actions, which probably would have been enough on their own for legitimacy. Clothar, hearing the news of his brother's actions, knew the implication and wasn't happy. If his elder brother remained childless, his kingdom would pass to Clothar on his death, and Clothar would have finally reforged the kingdom his father Clovis had once ruled. If Childebert had an heir, though, that would make things more difficult. Clothar could just kill the boy. It wouldn't be the first time he'd have a child's blood on his hands. But it was less than ideal. First, 
killing your own son would be, unsurprisingly, somewhat frowned upon. Second, there was no telling how long Childebert would live, and the longer Gundervald stood at his side, the more legitimacy he would gain. If it was years, and the boy was able to reach adulthood, he'd pose a serious challenge to Clothar. So, in typical fashion, Clothar acted decisively. He sent messengers to Childbert, saying, quote, Let the boy go and send him to me. End quote. Now, there is no evidence of whether this is all he said, or what might have been going on behind the scenes, but Childbert acquiesced and sent Gundervold to Clothar's court. While we can't be sure why, it's likely Childebert wasn't willing to risk an all-out conflict with his brother, one that he'd definitely lose, over the boy. Always the schemer, never the warrior. Now, Gundervald's experiences at the court of Clothar consist of two sentences in Gregory's work. Quote, Childebert immediately sent the boy to Clothar, who took one look at him and ordered him to have his hair cut. This is no son of mine, he said. End quote. We can assume more happened to the boy during this time, but what it was we have no way of knowing. Sounds like Clothar though, right? The powerful king already had too many sons, who were causing him grief. The last thing he needed was another one to cause more chaos. Of course, he also might have just thought the boy didn't actually resemble him. Maybe he didn't have enough blood on his hands for Clothar. Anyway, Gundervald survived the death of Clothar and the subsequent civil war, and appears again under the care of Charibert, eldest son of Clothar and king of Paris. As we've talked about before, Charibert wasn't much of a warrior, but his position as eldest king gave him authority, and his seizure of Paris, the final seats of Clovis and Clothar, was both prestigious and designed to limit the ambitions of the youngest son of Clothar, Chilperic. But, importantly, upon ascension to the throne of Paris, Charibert was already in his forties, with no clear heir. His three brothers knew, upon his death, they'd have the chance to take his lands for themselves, and they were likely counting on this. That made his protection of Gundervold a problem. The exact same situation that had played out with Childebert played out once again. The aging Charibert might have wanted to set Gundervold up as his heir, but his ambitious brothers could not allow such a thing. Gundervold was summoned to the court of Sigebert, and Charibert let him go. Apparently, like his uncle before him, Charibert wasn't willing to risk conflict with his militaristic brother over the boy. When Gundervold reached the court of Sigebert in the east, he faced the same humiliation he had received at the hands of Clothar. Denying his claims of legitimacy, Sigebert had Gundervold's hair cut off once again and exiled him to the city of Cologne. 
This period must have been hugely traumatizing for the young man. His mother's gamble hadn't paid off, and he had now spent his teenage years being bounced around the Merovingian courts, nothing more than a pawn in their political games. He had suffered humiliation twice, once at the hands of the man he believed to be his father, again at the hands of his half-brother. In the courts of Clothar and Sigebert, he must have feared for his life every day, as killing the young upstart would have been the simplest and cleanest way to solve the issue he presented. That fear seems to have been in Gundervold's mind during his exile in Cologne. The city was on the edge of Frankish territory, but he clearly felt unsafe still. So, he escaped, fleeing south and letting his hair grow out once again, in defiance. He managed to reach Italy and presented himself to Narses, the Eastern Roman general and statesman who had finally concluded the Roman reconquest of Italy. Now, Narses took in the young exile and supported his claims. What he planned to do with the young man is a source of much speculation. Many think he planned to set the young man up in charge of some northern and northwestern provinces of Italy, especially in the Alps. These territories, apparently, had Frankish populations, and Gundervold might have been able to rally these people to defend against the Lombard raids that were already hitting Italy, forming a buffer for the exhausted Romans. This, however, didn't pan out. Narses was soon replaced as commander in Italy, and Gundervold, having picked up a wife, kids, and some military experience, moved to Constantinople. Probably a good thing, too, because, as we know, the Lombards didn't let the Romans enjoy their victory for long, and swept across the Alps en masse, seizing large parts of the war-ravaged Italy in only a few years. Now, let's pause for a second in our story and discuss the international diplomatic games at play here. Constantinople, at this time, was something of a haven for exiled or removed royals from all across Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And this was a significant thing for two reasons. First, being the place that people fled to might not sound great, but it was actually a massive contribution to Eastern Roman power and prestige. The fact that the most powerful and ambitious exiles in the known world all went to one place, Constantinople, showed the authority the Eastern Roman court maintained. Even if they didn't plan to help all of these people, it showed that they were still the big dogs on the block, an important win for an empire that was beginning to decline and needed every prestige boost it could get. Second, the control of men and women like Gundervold gave the Eastern Roman court massive leverage over the kingdoms they came from. When, only a generation before, 
Justinian had started his attempted reconquest of western lands, he had used family disputes as causus belli. Reasons for his intervention and eventual seizure of previously independent states. In North Africa, he had attacked the Vandal Kingdom, whose nobles had removed the pro-Roman King Hilderic and replaced him with the anti-Roman Gallimer. The Eastern Roman attack was swift, and they seized North Africa for themselves. Their famous attack on the Ostrogothic Kingdom of Italy was justified by the murder of the pro-Roman queen Amalasuentha, who was betrayed by her nobles and her cousin Theodahad. Even in Spain, the Romans had intervened after a rebellion by a noble and seized a chunk of southern Spain for themselves. But in doing so, they became a massive power broker in Visigothic politics and later received several important exiles. Have you ever wondered what the band ACDC has to do with the missing town of Dublin, Wisconsin? Or who gets to decide what music plays at the end of the world? Or whether or not the largest unsolved art heist in history was actually a cover for a different crime? Maybe you haven't wondered about these things, but that's okay. On 31, we dive into strange, true, but often lesser-known stories and the interesting theories that surround them. From space to sports, lost media to internet lore, 31 has something for everyone. Find 31 on your favorite podcast platform and dive into the why behind the weird with me, Quinn Lovecraft. 31, the why behind the weird. Having alternative heirs that you can use as bargaining chips is a classic political strategy that was used throughout history, and the Eastern Romans knew what they were doing. They weren't just pretexts for conquest, the exiles were useful in a bunch of ways. Neighbours giving you trouble? Well, you can simply threaten to release their toppled heir and plunge their realm into civil war an easy way to extract concessions without having to actually get into any conflict, or even much effort on your part. Plus, if they're really getting rowdy, you can always actually go through with the threat. The Eastern Romans were always running out of troops, but they had plenty of money. Pop the exile on a ship with a few piles of gold, and send them back where they came from. Worst case scenario... They cause massive chaos in the realm, which you can exploit for more concessions. Best case, they succeed in toppling the government, and now you have a friendly and compliant regime there. It's a win-win. At the start, this is almost exactly what happened to Gundervold. After many years in Constantinople, he suddenly appears in Marseille, on a ship loaded with gold, claiming that he was finally here to receive the piece of inheritance that he was owed. He wanted his own kingdom in Gaul. Now, think about what we've learned about the Merovingians over the last 36 episodes. Do you think they're likely to peacefully give up large swaths of their land and income? No, of course not. And the Eastern Romans must have known this. Why they chose this moment to destabilise the Frankish realms is not 100% clear, 
but we can make a couple of educated guesses. Ever since Clovis's conquests, the Eastern Romans had feared the rising powers of the Franks. They were used to dealing with the Goths and the Vandals, and these groups were often being torn apart by pro- and anti-Roman factions. The Franks, on the other hand, were simply too far away, and often considered too wild to properly control. And this terrified the Romans. Remember, the Visigoths had been the Romans' arch-enemy in the West for nearly a hundred years, and Clovis, the king of some forgotten Roman ally tribes far in the north, had humiliated them, and his sons had humiliated and destroyed the Burgundians. Completely. If you remember all the way back to episode 3, not even the Huns had managed to destroy the Burgundians. So the Romans, from their perspective, had good reason to fear the Franks. This fear specifically manifested in two ways. The Romans were afraid of a Frankish invasion of Italy, and a Frankish invasion of the Balkans. The invasion of Italy made perfect sense. The sons of Clovis had actually done this during the Roman war with the Goths. The Romans had paid them to invade and occupy the northern flank of the Goths, but the massive Frankish army had almost immediately gone rogue, seizing large parts of northern Italy, and generally looking like they were there to stay. The Romans had never actually defeated them either. The Franks had been forced to retreat after their army was ravaged by disease. The Romans lived in constant fear that the Franks would return, even after the Lombard invasion had taken most of northern Italy away from them. The potential invasion of the Balkans was more of a Roman panic nightmare. They don't seem to have realised how far the Frankish army had declined since the death of Clothar. And even during the years of Clovis and Clothar, the Franks would have struggled to campaign so far away from their power base in Gaul. Plus, well, they had little reason to. There were easier targets closer to home. But still, the Romans feared. And when the Eastern Romans feared, they inevitably meddled. Even if an invasion by the Franks wasn't imminent, installing Gundervold, or at least letting him go and try, would have ensured at least one of the Frankish kingdoms was friendly to Roman interests. It is perhaps no coincidence that Gundervold's rebellion was centred on the south, where Eastern Roman economic interests were strongest. Now, the meat of Gundervold's rebellion is going to have to wait till next week. It is complicated, and deserves time to be properly explored. But I'd like to set up the beginning, and some of the major players, now, just to help us along. So, Gundervold arrives from across the Mediterranean, in the port city of Marseille. Gregory states that, quote, he was invited by a person who shall remain nameless, end quote. A tantalizing mystery that will leave till next week. But the first person he actually met was Bishop Theodore. 
Theodore, later Saint Theodore, you might remember from episode 32, where we discussed his precarious position in the city of Marseille. He was a supporter of Childebert II, but was deep in Guntram's territory, and had just barely seen off a challenge from Dynamius, Guntram's noble in the area. These political entanglements are important to note because Theodore welcomed Gundervold and became his first major supporter. He provided the upstart king with horses and sent him to Avignon to meet with Duke Mamelus. Now, if you remember back to episode 31, we discussed how Mamelus, the great general who had beaten back the Lombards and previously fought with Sigebert, had had to flee the court of Guntram and had entrenched himself in Avignon after Childebert II's court had broken their alliance with Guntram and instead allied with Chilperic. I speculated that this was likely not a coincidence, and Mumulus either fled preemptively or was forced to flee due to his relationship with the court of Childebert II. So, Theodore, an ally of Childebert in the lands of Guntram, sent Gundervold to meet with Mumulus, a likely ally of Childebert in the lands of Guntram. Seeing a pattern here? Unfortunately for Gundervold, a wild card was about to enter the picture. Count Guntramboso, our old friend, was seemingly unable or unwilling to let a major rebellion happen in the realm without getting involved himself. He had been forced to flee the lands of Chilperic, but it seems he wasn't exactly popular in the court of Childebert. He had previously worked for Fredegund, which meant Brunhild's faction would never have trusted him, but he was also hated by Chilperic, which meant that the pro-Chilperic faction was unlikely to want his help either. So, he had drifted south into the lands of Guntram, and now needed to prove himself useful to his new king. And the arrival of Gundervold provided just such an opportunity. Guntramboso seized Bishop Theodore and threw him in jail for, quote, introducing a foreigner into Gaul with the intention of subjecting the Frankish kingdom to imperial rule, end quote. Now, what authority he had to do this to a bishop of the realm is unclear. But hey, what's a little extrajudicial imprisonment between friends? Theodore, perhaps unsurprisingly, objected to this treatment. But he produced something most fascinating. He claimed he did not welcome Gundvold of his own volition, and produced a letter signed by powerful men in the court of Childebert that apparently commanded him to do so. This is a fascinating wrinkle in the story. This letter will not appear again, and we don't know who was implicated, or even if the bishop was simply making it all up to cover his own ass. But that is the third time a link to the court of Childebert II has appeared, and Gundervold has only just arrived. I wonder who the nameless, mysterious person 
who invited Gundervold to return could possibly be. Hmm. Things are about to descend into intricate political shenanigans, so we'll leave it here. On Sunday, we'll get into the rebellion of Gundervold and see how it reveals all the weaknesses in the Merovingian kingdoms. See you then.